We're going to be reading out of uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 this morning. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man is traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he is attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him up. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to the inn, where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to this man who who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, go and do the same. This is the end of the reading of God's word. Thanks, Ryan. Good morning. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a powerful word, I believe, for the church at this moment. This whole story comes because a religious leader is trying to justify himself. He's trying to get out of the moral responsibility of his own theology. He knows the great commandment, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But how far does that really go? Who is my neighbor and who am I responsible for? So Jesus tells a story. And in Jesus' story, it's the religious men, the ones who claim to hold up this great commandment, we're told, who pass the suffering man. They even went to the other side of the road to avoid him. To avoid him, to avoid the whole situation. We're not told why, but simply, it seems that they didn't see him as someone worth helping. They didn't see this person as a human in need of mercy. In their minds, he was not their neighbor. Maybe they thought, that's not my business, right? I, I, shouldn't, get in, I shouldn't get involved in this thing. Maybe he's just faking being hurt. Maybe this is a whole ploy, and, and I go over, and he's going to rob me. Maybe they thought, 
Well, that's not my experiencing traveling, my experience traveling the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's never happened to me. Maybe they thought he might have done something to deserve it. We don't know the excuses. We don't know what they thought. We don't know what the excuses are to this day. But they, like Cain, bought the lie. I am not my brother's keeper. But Jesus says, along came a despised Samaritan. Remember, John tells us in his gospel, there was huge prejudices between the Samaritans and the Jews. But it says of this despised Samaritan, and I, I was studying the ESV today, so this is how it says in the ESV, and I loved it. It says, he saw the man. He saw the man. He didn't see a Jew. He didn't see someone of a different ethnicity, per se, but he saw a man. He saw a fellow human. It says next, he had compassion. And then next, he drew near to him. Where the priest and the Levite crossed to the other side of the road to avoid this man, this Samaritan draws near to him. He does not turn away. He does not avoid him. And it says that he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Next, he puts him on his own animal. He took him to an inn and took care of him. And finally, he paid for whatever extra charges the man incurred as he got better. Jesus then turns to the religious leaders and says, which of these proved to be a neighbor? And the reply, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus' call to them and to all who will hear this word is go and do the same. For many Christians, there seems to be a mixed perspective on what is going on right now in our culture. I've heard many different opinions this week, read many different articles, social media, news, what have you. Some things have been super encouraging, have been hopeful. Um, I've read and, and listened to friends and, and what they've shared with me has been clarifying. It's been convicting. Others have brought anger and frustration, confusion, disillusionment. Some say that we, the church, church leaders, should not speak into this moment, that we should stay in our lane, mind our own business, stick to the church, stick to the Bible, stick to the gospel. Others say this is the moment for the church to stand up. Gerald Sitzer, in his book, Resilient Faith, he argues that the Christian community of the first century was able to influence the world in the way it did because it was a third way. So within that culture, we obviously had the Roman pagan culture, which was the first way. This was the mainstream culture. You lived in Roman cities, right? You worshipped 
uh, Caesar as Lord. You went to the pagan temples. You shopped in their marketplaces. That's just the way it was Roman culture everywhere, Greco-Roman culture. But within that culture, there was actually a second culture or a second way, and it was Judaism. Judaism was its own subculture. It had its own customs. It had its own marketplaces. It had its own way of life and culture, but it did not come into contact with the Roman culture, really. They bumped up against each other, and they almost kind of carried on as parallel cultures. But when Christianity emerged, it emerged not as the first way, not as the second way, but as a third way. It was in many ways indistinguishable from Roman culture and social life and engagement, and yet this community was completely countercultural. As one historian said, the Christians share everything except their bed. This alone at the time was radical counterculture. Tim Keller, in an address to church leaders in the Bay Area, highlighted the countercultural practice of the early church. I just want to list out a few of them for you. First, he says, the early church was multi-ethnic and experienced a unity across ethnic and cultural boundaries that was startling to the known world. Paul talks about this in his letters, right? In Christ Jesus, there aren't these major distinctions between people groups. It's not Jew or Greek. It's not slave or free. It's not male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. The early church was also a community of nonviolence, forgiveness, and reconciliation. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that the center of their gathering was the sacrificial life and death of Jesus the Messiah. They were a community of reconciliation, a community of forgiveness. The early church was also famous for its hospitality and compassion to the poor and suffering. It was a community committed to the sanctity of life. You can read about this in those days, not that abortion was very common in the early uh, first century, but what was was infanticide or infant exposure. Unwanted children were left out in the streets or thrown into the trash heap or left in the woods for the wolves to eat them. But it was known that the Christians from the cradle to the grave lifted up life and protected the weak and the vulnerable. And lastly, the Christian third way was a sexual counterculture. And it was because the early church didn't fit in with its surrounding culture, but rather challenged it in love, that Christianity eventually had such a transformative effect on the Roman culture. And here's a question. Could essentially the same social project have a similar effect if we carried it out today? If we live like the early church lived, I believe it would radically shake and transform our culture. All that to say, it's a temptation for the church in this cultural moment to fall into the trap of the second way. 
to be a subculture within the broader culture that has little to no effect on the world, but Christ Jesus our Lord has called us to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, and the church is called to be the model to society of what righteousness and justice is of what unity and diversity looks like, of kindness and generosity, of empathy and compassion, of listening and learning. And so we must speak to this cultural moment and we must have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church through the word, through the testimony of the saints that have gone before us, how the Spirit would call us to be the people of God to and for the world. Though we hate to admit it, though I hate to admit it, much of what we actually see going on in the broader culture, believe it or not, is from a failure on the church's part to live out faithfulness to the gospel and live as followers of Jesus. It is a historical fact that the American church was complicit in slavery segregation and systemic racism since the founding of America, almost to the very beginning. Did you know that the famous British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon was such an ardent opponent of slavery that he was sent death threats from the largest church denominations in America warning him, never come to this country. We'll kill you will kill you. The church in America. How can that be? God's people would send threats to one of the most famous evangelical preachers. Don't you dare come to this country or we will kill you. It's known that Billy Graham later in his life confessed and regretted that he had been very outspoken against communism, but almost silent in the conversation surrounding civil rights. Now, I'm not going to talk this morning about some of the incredible accomplishments of the church for civil liberties, for freedom, for tearing down segregation. We could talk about William Wilberforce. We could talk about Martin Luther King Jr. We could talk about many who did incredible things for the kingdom of God. But we need to talk about this. We need to talk about the dark side. I would imagine if you were to ask the average Christian in America, if I were to ask you if you were a racist, if you were bigoted or prejudiced, you would say absolutely not. You totally deny it, right? And that's good. Praise the Lord. But have we ever done anything to dismantle racism, to dismantle bigotry and prejudice? When we see it, when we hear it in the workplace, when we hear misogyny in the workplace and objectification and, and these types of things, do we say something? Do we speak up for those who do not have a voice? Scripture calls us to. Also, what if racism and bigotry isn't always in your face like the ideology of white supremacy like we often think oh of course i'm not bigoted of course i'm not racist what if it is more subtle and in the forms of suspicion and prejudging we as humans sow seeds of prejudice all the time i have noticed 
and this is not just in the past, this is even recently, that people, and especially people in the church, push and lead towards uniformity. Everybody look the same. Everybody think the same thing about you know, these hot topics. If we need to all think the same about these things. Everybody get in line. We don't do well with difference. We prejudge it, and we are often suspicious and fearful of what is different. Can I say, that is not the church. That is a cult, but that is not the church, and it is not the church of Jesus Christ. God's people are to be an example to the world, not of uniformity, but of unity amid diversity. Paul reminds us in the book of Ephesians that Christ Jesus is our peace who has broken down the middle wall of separation and created a new humanity made up of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Paul is saying that Jesus tears down all the walls that we erect to differentiate between one another, to separate us, to say we're different, we're other. As we see in Revelation, surrounding the throne of God are people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and yet united they sing the song of the Lamb and the song of the redeemed. We, I've got to read it. So good. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You were slain, and by your blood you ransom people. That's what the church is supposed to look like. The church should look like that Every tribe, tongue, nation, and people united in the song of the redeemed. Worthy are you, O Lord. The world should be able to look at us as a model of peace and of unity and of diversity. Seriously, if we can't get it together, how do we expect the world to? How do we expect the blind to see when those who claim to see are so blind? We as humans, of course, are always attaching moral value to our difference, to our likes and dislikes, to our preferences and experiences, Republican versus Democrat, white versus black and brown, male versus female, the other. We as humans tend to become suspicious and judgmental of people who aren't the same as us. And sadly, the church is a great offender in this way as well. We've been scared and suspicious and we prejudge different theologies and denominations, conversations and perspectives surrounding sexuality. We're afraid to talk about these things. Ideas of systemic racism and so on and so forth. Oh, no, 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 don't talk about that. We're not going to talk about that. We don't believe that. We just reject that. Rather than being approachable, willing to listen and learn, being compassionate and sympathetic, the church has many times been cold and dogmatic in areas that it has no business being dogmatic. We should have been compassionate and sympathetic. This doesn't sound or look like Jesus when we read the Gospels. I mean, the incarnation of the Son of God by itself demands that we change that posture. 
God, right, who is the ultimate other, crossed heaven and earth, became a human, moved into our broken down neighborhood, as it were, took on our sickness, our pain, our suffering. Jesus is the good Samaritan who sees the man, who approaches the man, who has compassion, who touches him and heals him, who takes responsibility. That's what Jesus did. Took on our sickness, our pain, our suffering, our problems, our sin, and he died in our place that we might be redeemed, that we might be brought into the family of God. The gospel calls us who are followers of Jesus. Jesus who approached the other he who approached the one who is different, the tax collector, the prostitute, the Roman centurion, the zealot, he calls us to do likewise. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? Well, I just want to give a few words of encouragement and exhortation. And I think number one is, church, we must pray. We must pray. Paul tells us that the weapons that God has given us, the armor of God, the weapon of prayer, these are not physical weapons, but they are mighty through God, it says, for pulling down strongholds, for pulling down anything that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God. That's what we need to see done in our country. We need to see anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, that man, that humans have been made in his image, that there is one race and there is one blood by which we have been redeemed. All of that needs to be torn down and truly it can only be done through the power of prayer. What we need is transformation by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so church, we need to pray like we talked about last week, we pray for the kingdom of God to come, for God's will to be done anywhere where we see the destructive work of sin. We need to pray for the church at this moment. We need to pray for our government and leaders. We need to pray for the victims of racism and suspicion in our country. We need to pray for those who are hurting, for those who are angry, for those who are fearful. We need to pray. Secondly, I believe we need to repent. Remember, we always think that repent is that harsh word. Repent, it's not. It is our Father saying, you're going down the wrong road. Turn around. Walk with me. That is what Jesus is saying to us, church. Church, turn around. Walk with me. Don't go the way of the conservative party. Don't go this way. Don't go that way. Walk with me. Don't go the way of the Democratic Party. Don't go the way of any party. You walk with me. That's what he says to us. We need to diversify our intake and perspective. We need to be ready to listen, to grow, to educate ourselves. We need to talk to our friends that are minorities. We need to talk to our friends who are cops or who are in government authority. We need to be ready to listen and bring everything back to following Jesus. That's what we need to do. I believe we need to educate ourselves. A couple years ago, I was traveling and I saw this book called The Color of Law as I was traveling through the airport. I was like, what is that? I picked it up and I was shocked by the things that I read in there. That the U.S. government for so long has just 
state by state, county by county, systematically oppressed minorities, pushed them out of neighborhoods. It is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Those who served in our armed forces were not given the GI Bill. Those who would have deserved loans, who were faithful in their payments, were rejected. We need to know this stuff. This is part of our history as Americans. It's a book by Richard Rothstein. I encourage you to pick it up. Also, there's a book called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. This one talks about the church's complicity in systemic racism since the beginning. It is heartbreaking. George Whitfield is a huge hero of mine. I read his biography. It was something that radically shaped my life and my passion for preaching, my passion for the gospel when I was a young man. And to read that George Whitfield himself had a plantation. And he did it because it was cheap labor. It was free labor. And he could support his preaching of the gospel with it. God help us. Thank God there were people like Wesley. There were others during that time who radically opposed slavery. I already talked about Charles Spurgeon. Thank God for men like this. But we need to know the truth about even the church's complicity in these things. We need to repent. We need to see where our blind spots are. I recently picked up The Strength to Love by Martin Luther King Jr. What an incredible book. That man's theology, that man's understanding of the gospel, of the call to love our neighbor as ourselves. I'm also reading a book by John Perkins called One Blood. I love what he says in there. We need to stop calling it racial reconciliation. He says, there's one race. That's it. We want to talk about ethnic reconciliation? Great. We want to talk about cultural reconciliation? Great. But this idea that there are multiple races in the world is a total lie. There is one race. We have been created by God And we have all come through one man, Adam, and we have been redeemed by one man, the man Jesus Christ. I encourage you, church, to pick up some of these books and begin to read. Read with an open heart. Read with an open mind. Our family, I love this, every February and also, you know, bleeding over into other months because, you know, we kind of take our time. But every February, our family celebrates black history by reading and learning about the accomplishments and hardships of the black community. I encourage you parents, do this with your children. Educate them. Tell them the story confess. Let them know about the church's complicity in these things. Of course, age appropriately, but they need to know these things. The the terrible thing is that many have found this stuff out way later in life and been totally disillusioned because the church has not owned up and has not repented of their sin. We need to do that. We need to be humble enough to do that. We need to say we are sinners in need of the grace of God, but Jesus alone is the Savior. And he will cleanse us if we will confess, if we will turn. He will make us right. He will make us whole. We need to do that. Now, you may think that this isn't an issue in your life, but I I ask you to look around you. How diverse is your friendship group, or excuse me, your friend group? Or another question, are you able to hold friendship and fellowship with those who are different from you, come from a different different ethnicity, different cultural background, who have a different view of politics than you do, who disagree with you about important topics. Are you able to sit at the table with them and say, we are one family. We are the body of Christ. 
Are we able to do that? We have to confront partiality by listening, learning, in order to understand, seeking out those who come from different ethnicities, cultures, backgrounds, and perspectives than us, walking a mile in their shoe. And lastly, we need to seek, like Jesus, to be an agent of reconciliation. That's what we're called to. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we are ambassadors for Christ. God pleading through us, we implore you, be reconciled to God. We are agents of reconciliation. That is part of our identity as the people of God. We need to be those who bring healing, reconciliation. We need to live out and share the gospel. Church, I pray that you would have ears to hear this. We can find from Genesis to Revelation, we've been talking about this for a number of years, that God is a God of righteousness and justice. He's a God who has a bleeding heart for the the quadrilateral poor, for the fatherless, for the widow, for the poor, for the foreigner. God is a bleeding heart for those people who are on the bottom, for those who are oppressed, and he calls his people to do likewise. Let it be so with us. Let us be the generation that changes the the landscape that changes the posture of the church. Let us be the generation that returns to the way of Jesus fully in every way that we remove these blind spots. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us, Lord. Help our unbelief. Help, Lord, our hard-heartedness. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible mercy that you have had upon your people in every generation, Lord, because we all get it wrong. We thank you for your mercy, and Lord, we look forward to the day when there around the throne we will sing out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, worthy are you, O Lord. Would we not wait for that day, but would we Sing the song now. Would we live out that vision now? Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to put feet to our theology. Give us grace, O Lord. Amen.